Hello, and welcome to episode two of the August 2023 BV podcast, bringing you a taste of genuine rural Dorset life. I'm Jenny Devitt. And it's hello from me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, wildlife writer Jane Adams will tell us something of the lives of a rarely seen mammal that she says should thrive in the Dorset landscape, the stoat. The story of Chris Taylor, an internationally recognised test pilot, and his career at the leading edge of aviation. And Andrew Livingston bemoans the imbalance between the farmers who produce our food and the supermarkets that sell it. And former TV and film cameraman Simon Priestman talks about the small southwest Dorset vineyard he and his wife Karen own not far from Abbotsbury. Roger Guttridge reflects on the 50th anniversary of that advert, which brought Shaftesbury's Gold Hill to national prominence. In this month's BV magazine, nature writer and regular contributor Jane Adams gave us something about that rarely seen but possibly relatively common little mammal, the stoat. The stoat belongs to the family of mustelids, which includes badgers and otters. But how to tell the difference between a stoat and a weasel? There's an old joke, somewhat cringe-making, to be honest, about how a weasel is weaselly identifiable and a stoat is stoatly different. So I asked Jane to clarify. A weasel, to be honest, when you do see one, is very small. I mean, um, I was reading something the other day and they said that a, a weasel could actually get its head through the ring of a wedding ring. So, you know, that's how small they are. And they're probably about 10 centimetres smaller than a stoat would be. So I know it's difficult to sort of imagine, but if you see something that's very small and hasn't got a black tip to its tail, then it's probably it's going to be a weasel. Whereas a stoat is, you know, quite a bit bigger. So sort of up to 30 centimetres and has this black tip which you can usually see because it sort of points its tail straight upright when it's sort of running along. Do they both have that white bib and underbelly? They do. Um, the stoats one is, I mean, it, it's pretty un unlikely that you're going to be able to see it this clearly, but the stoat one has a really straight line between the, the dark and the light colour, whereas the weasel um, has a bit more of a wiggly line. So, but again... You're not likely to see that, are you, when you see sort of <laughs> this sort of flashing view of one? Yes, because uh, actually you're lucky to see one at all, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, for something that's not actually rare at all, or they don't think that they are. I always hate it when they actually say, oh, these things aren't rare. But we thought that about hedgehogs a few years ago and, and look what what's happened to them. Yeah, there's supposed to be an awful lot of them around, so... It is quite surprising that we don't see them, but they do tend to sort of keep to the ditches and hedgerows. They don't tend to go out in in the middle of a field. If you do see one sort of chasing a rabbit or something, it's quite unusual. They would usually be looking for prey along walls and hedgerows and, and ditches. Because I suppose it's not only that that's where their prey is, but they need the cover from their enemies, don't they? Yeah, because they're going to be they're going to be prey to other things. So I mean, I should think there's plenty of other stuff that would quite let, like to get hold of a stoat, um, some of the birds of prey and things like that. So yeah, it's just as important for them to to keep an eye out and, and make sure that they're safe as well. Jane, they do stoats do have quite a varied diet, don't they? They do. I mean, uh, main things are are going to be sort of things like voles and shrews. And, and obviously rabbits. 
but they you know they will eat quite a lot of other things so um, amphibians frogs toads reptiles um, even birds and eggs um, we sort of think of other things as being the the things that eat those they'll even eat fruit and earthworms so yeah they're pretty varied and i think they adapt to whatever is is plentiful around them so that would mean since they eat a wide variety of food that would help to keep their population up wouldn't it yeah although i mean the main thing that i guess it would be a worry for them i mean we're really lucky in dorset that we've got an awful lot of that type of habitat still so we've still got a lot of ditches and hedgerows but where they have been taken away and over the years especially in in other counties that would have reduced their numbers i would have thought quite a lot because they they do tend to be quite private it's quite rare that you sort of see them in um, close proximity to humans you mentioned uh, a moment ago hedges and ditches so what's the very best terrain for them Really, if you go for a country walk, any pretty much anywhere in Dorset where there's hedgerows and ditches, then as well as sort of keeping an eye out for sort of birds in the hedgerows, look down to the sort of the bottom of the hedgerow. In fact, a friend of mine um, on our local little um, nature reserve that we've got in our village actually saw a stoat chasing a rabbit across the field which is quite unusual but it was a small field surrounded by hedgerows so that that's the sort of place you're likely to see them or you might as i saw one literally sort of jogging its way up up a road in front of you or going across in front of you when you're walking or cycling i have seen them a couple of times that way as well Jane, unless you happen to know to know where they've made a nest, and where's that likely to be? Mainly they will take up residence in the burrows and holes of their prey. So weasels, if we're going back to weasels, they would probably have theirs in, in mice holes and vole holes, um, whereas stoats would probably make use of rabbit holes and things like that. And in very cold weather, they will actually line it with the fur of their prey which is a bit gruesome, but um, but quite clever. So, yes, you can imagine them sort of tucking themselves away at the bottom of hedgerows and walls um, in burrows of of prey or, or other animals that have, have left those holes. So I had a, a friend who found a family of stoats in his garden in, in a Oh, woodpile so that's you know that's another place they do actually move around so once the the mother has had that you know once the young have been born she will move them around to different places probably i would imagine it's for safety so if she gets sort of she doesn't want to be in one place for too long so once they get to an age where they can move she might move them about to different places and it would also be easier for her to get food for them if she's moving around as well so so, yes, you, that is the time when you might see them, you know, if they're in your log pile or your compost heap or something like that, you might suddenly see sort of a whole family of of stoats <laughs> um, playing in your garden, which would be amazing. That would be in the countryside, I imagine, would it? Not on the edge of a town? Yeah, it would. I, the friend who I had who phoned me up, um, who told me about the stoats in his garden, wasn't very far away from, from a town at all and was very close to a very, very busy A31. A31. But they, they seem to be absolutely fine. So, 
You know, I do wonder whether they probably come closer to towns and villages than we imagine. It's just that they do quite a lot of their hunting at night. They've got amazing eyesight. So I think they're just blimming good at, at not being seen. So what you need, if you suspect there might be a stoat family living near you, is to have a camera trap to spot them at night, isn't it? Yeah, that would be a good... I mean, I have seen... I don't know whether it was a stoat, but I did catch a, a sight of... of some kind of mustelid, so whether it was um, maybe a ferret or something else coming through my garden years and years ago, and and we're actually on the well in the middle of a of a, one of the small towns in Dorset. So so yes, you might be more likely to to see them there, especially if your garden has a good population of of mice and voles. Then um, then why not? Or frogs, if you happen to have a nice wildlife pond, as I do, full of frogs. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, because I've got a pond as well and we get a lot of frogs and obviously frogs and toads are not necessarily in the pond all year round. They're they're basically all the way around your garden. I mean, you come across them all the time um, on land. They spend sort of a lot of their time on land. So, yes, that's another another prey. I think they will go where where they can eat. You know, if they've got a lot of prey, Uh, that they suddenly find, then, yeah, if it's in your garden, then they might stick around if they're not being disturbed too much. So, Jane, if one tends to see stoats largely by accident, is there any way of looking out for their tracks, for instance? Well, you could do. I mean, in the winter, that might be easier when it's um, a lot more muddy and and snow is always brilliant for seeing animal tracks. Not that you can always decide what they are, but I think probably the best way you're going to see stoats and weasels is just to get out there if you are able to manage to get out into the countryside and and are able to walk or cycle then if you do it enough the chances are you're going to see them at some point it's a good reason i think for for getting outside into the countryside if you possibly can um it's the same with all all wildlife you know eventually you're probably going to run into a badger or a fox or a, a a stoat or a weasel one of the very interesting things about stoats that you wrote about is that the females, like um, some other mammals, can actually delay the implantation of their fertilised egg until there's enough food around f- to feed the young. Yes, it's it's fascinating. It's called um, embryonic diapause. And so they can... The embryo is actually delayed. It can be delayed for up to nine or ten months in in order for them to be able to give birth to their young at the most favorable environmental conditions so you know it's sort of the time when there's going to be the most food and possibly the weather is not going to be too inclement for them to to survive so they wouldn't necessarily want to be giving birth to them in the middle the depths of the winter when there's there's not a lot of other prey but yeah quite a few other um musclers do it i mean badgers do it as well um, so it's, yeah, a fascinating adaptation. You also write in your article that we've given male stoats various names, Jack being one of them, and the females are called Jill. So I'm wondering if they're actually the origin of the old Jack and Jill children's song. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they were? Yeah, I don't know whether that is the case or not. I mean, I think there's a lot of history about stoats, you know, a especially country people they've they know about uh, stoats and weasels and they've they've seen them all their life and and things have been passed down about them so i wouldn't 
I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like that. I mean, the other thing is that they're quite renowned for doing, for, for hypnotizing rabbits. I mean, it wasn't something that I actually wrote in the article, but there is a, um, a debate as to whether sometimes stoats and weasels are seen dancing in the middle of a, a field and the rabbits don't seem to take too much notice of it and it means that the stoats can get nearer and nearer and nearer to the rabbit and then they pounce. However, there is also some debate as to whether this hypnotic dancing that they do, which is completely bonkers, I mean they'll roll around, they'll be on their head, they're jumping around. There is some other thought and I read on the um, Mammal Society website that it could be a parasitic worm that they get in their head and that might actually be causing them a lot of pain and that's what's causing the the strange dancing. But then other people have seen them attacking rabbits straight afterwards, so who knows? And I expect that has gone down over the years as, as being a one of these weird things that animals do, hypnotising the rabbits. I think they do get these parasitic worms, unfortunately, but whether they actually make them do this jumping around and dancing is is another thing that I think um, further research needs to take place. Of, of course, Jane, in the winter, a stoat's fur famously turns white, doesn't it? And it becomes known as an ermine. And I understand that stoats or ermines have quite a place in European folklore. And to the Zoroastrians... They're sacred because that white winter coat symbolises purity. Purity, yes. I mean, any animal that is white tends to, that happens to them. They're, they're, they're shown on a lot of heraldry across Europe. I mean, I think they're on the, is it Brittany or somewhere? They're on the heraldic shield for there. But in the UK, it's a bit different because, and especially in southern UK, because it doesn't get cold enough for them to actually make the change from their dark coat to to the ermine. But ermine, yes, it's always been something that's been used by royalty in their ceremonial coats and things like that. So they've always had this sort of special place in country law and heraldry and, and importance. But yes, like you say, I expect it has been because it's... Um, the purity of, of their white coat. I think in some places, um, and I don't know whether this happens in, in Dorset, they do go a bit patchy, so they'll get little little white patches, but nothing like the, the ermine that they might get in, in some of the colder Scandinavian countries. And you probably know that, uh, and I'm sure you know, one of Leonardo da Vinci's best-known paintings shows a young woman holding an ermine. And uh, there's also another one of Elizabeth I with an ermine, symbolising, of course, her virginity and purity. Yes, and I wonder, yeah, because they wouldn't have been ermines, but I wonder whether they, you know, they, they would have brought ermine in to the country or they, you know, they, they would have had ermine... Um, pelts for making their sort of um, shawls and coats during that time. I mean, it was it was big business at one time. The having the coats of ermine to make into different things. So yes, it's interesting that um, that that has been used for so many hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and and of course that colour change would have been a source of great mystery until science uh, clarified it and explained why it happened. 
Yes, I mean, it must have been totally, yes, they must have thought they were a magical creature, mustn't they? I mean, and I expect that's why they've sort of gone down in history as that sort of thing. Just a shame that they killed them and uh, and used them for their coats. But that is unfortunately what we tended to do in, in olden days, wasn't it? When something was mystical and, and magical. Jane Adams on that lithe and swift little animal, the stoat. A Career in the Skies, Life as a Test Pilot by Rachel Rowe. Former Royal Navy officer Chris Taylor, an acclaimed civil certification test pilot, explains the unique skill set required for the job. When you jet off on your holiday in the sun, how often do you think about the work that went into making your flight safe? Chris Taylor, who lives near Salisbury, has had a successful career as a Royal Navy officer, a test pilot, helicopter pilot, and finally as an internationally acclaimed civil certification test pilot. He's flown more than 400 different types of aircraft and is arguably one of the best qualified and widely experienced test pilots working today, anywhere in the world. With that kind of background, it's little wonder he's written three books about his career. When he came to the recent Sturmitz to Newton Literary Festival, the room was packed and there were lots of questions from the audience. How did Chris choose the career path that led him to becoming a test pilot? I always wanted to be a pilot ever since I watched lightning jet fighters over Anglesey on family holidays. In the mid-70s, Thames TV did a documentary about the test pilot school at Boscombe Down, and that was that. I got my private pilot's licence at 17, and I did engineering at university. When I graduated, I joined the Royal Navy as a navigation officer before flying Lynx helicopters. I had a 20-year career in the Navy. As a test pilot, Chris has flown many different types of aircraft, from ex-military jets to home-built aeroplanes. Is there one that stands out as the best aircraft to fly? There's no perfect aeroplane. It's like cars. There's no one perfect car. But if I could choose one aeroplane, it would be the Sea Fury. With the fleet air arm, the Sea Fury was the iconic fighter aircraft of the 1950s, and it was the last of the big fighters. And what about career highlights? Well, being a grandfather, actually. I've had some good experiences. The most awesome flight I did was in a Variable Stability Harrier, or VAAC, at Boscombe Down. It was a modified Harrier from the 1980s. It was one of the research vehicles that eventually found itself in the F-35 programme. And that refers to the Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning II. It's a modern fighter jet, a single-seat, single-engine, all-weather stealth combat aircraft. There are lots of people who simply want to fly, but what skills are needed to become a test pilot? Well, first of all, you need to be an above-average pilot. You have to be very competent with your mental agility. You need to be analytical about what is happening around you. You must also be a good verbal communicator and be able to communicate with clarity and brevity. At Boscombe Down, we had many tools at our disposal and would specifically fly an aircraft to determine the specifics. It's not casual flight. You academically test things. For example, if something is meant to fly at 90 miles an hour, you ask why it isn't reaching that speed. Regular pilots will take six months to learn how to fly a single aircraft. A test pilot has to fly things to test them. It's a bit like a rental car. When you rent a car, you sit there and look for the clutch, the brake and the basics, so you know how to drive it. Then you check for the specifics, including the computer program these days. You look for what's different. I think some test pilots struggle to dial down their ability. 
they have to consider an average pilot in their first plane. Would they be able to manage that? I look at the work that Winkle Brown did as a test pilot. He flew lots of aircraft, but wasn't always able to dial down. Your job as a test pilot is to think, could a less experienced colleague do that? When the news broke recently about the submersible that imploded while travelling to see the wreck of the Titanic, it was obviously horrifying. However, the initial investigation has brought the use of experimental vessels into discussion and, of course, not listening to testing experts. Chris says it wasn't a wise thing to do. In aviation, you have aircraft that are fully tested. That's what we go on holiday in. They're all rigorously checked, the systems are tested, and it's safe. It's probably more dangerous getting to the airport. I get to test experimental aircraft, and I take no one with me who's not operational on the job. Four flew with me recently, and we got into some quite dangerous things. Afterwards, we reflected on whether we needed all those people on board. It would go against my principles to take fair-paying passengers on something like that. The submersible was not approved and was conducting research. Taking fair passengers on board a situation like that is disastrous. There will always be thrill-seekers out there, but I don't do that. I like to think it's a wake-up call for people who go out doing these things. Chris has written three books, a trilogy of his career. My third book is on the computer right now, he says. It's the final version from the publisher. My most recent book is about the 20 years I spent in the Royal Navy as an operational Lynx and Wessex pilot. It's a prequel to the prequel. The first book was about me, the test pilot, and the second about my time as an experimental test pilot. I've documented my career so my grandchildren can read about what Grandad did. And Chris Taylor's books Test Pilot, Naval Aviator and Experimental Test Pilot are published by Pen and Sword. A cry for fairness is farming at the crossroads. Andrew Livingston looks at the unfair struggle between agriculture and the supermarkets. When I first started my column with the BV, I presumed it was going to be me regaling funny stories from a life lived in agriculture. More and more, I seemed to be dusting off my milk crate instead, hopping up on it to shout about the many injustices that farmers face today. Strap in, I'm about to go off on one again. News broke recently that the Dorset Dairy Co. in Stalbridge was to sell its herd of milking cows. A dairy business without its cows, purely because the cost of producing the milk now outweighs the price they're paid for it. Sadly, it's not a rare story. It's symbolic of modern farming. Many egg producers have empty sheds no longer housing birds, thanks to the same fear of losing money each time. Last year saw a spike in the milk price as the cost of all commodities rose after the Russian invasion of Ukraine but the price farmers have been paid for milk has rapidly dropped again, while costs obviously have not. Of course, dairy farmers not being paid enough isn't a new phenomenon. It seems every few years this row breaks out, farmers mobilise their tractors and block supermarket distribution centres. And no, the supermarkets can't be blamed for the cost of electricity. And no, it isn't the supermarket's fault that the cost of animal feed went through the roof. The issue I have with supermarkets is that when things get tight for producers and consumers, the supermarkets are always the winners. As the pandemic struck, the big three supermarkets, who had all been struggling in previous years thanks to the rapid growth of Aldi and Lidl, all recorded massive profits. Tesco, Sainsbury's and Asda in 2021-2022 made a profit of £3.2 billion, double the £1.6 billion they made in 2019. 
This year, amid a cost-of-living crisis with food inflation at 19.1%, Sainsbury's has announced a further 3% increase in profits. Tesco has announced a very slight dip of 2%. The most sickening news, however, is that Tesco and Sainsbury's together are paying out a whopping £1.2 billion to their shareholders this year. Yet, British farmers are expected to feed the country at a loss. Call me crazy, but Marxism is starting to sound a bit more appealing. Something has to change. The government must begin to control the strength and power the supermarkets have over the food chain. In a statement, the Dorset Dairy Co. announced that they are instead going to concentrate on their cultured dairy products, Dorset strained yoghurt, kefir and cultured butter. This diversification to create more artisan foods with their produce is the obvious answer for most small family-run farms. However, it's not a golden bullet. It has its own issues. Firstly, it takes an investment of cash to purchase the required equipment for diversification, cash that a small family-run farm may well not have. Secondly, there can only be so many small Dorset cheese producers before it's no longer niche and artisan. The gap in the market closes, competition rises, and farms begin to sell their produce cheaper and cheaper. I look forward to seeing the Dorset Dairy Co's yoghurt and butter on the shelves. Just please not on a supermarket's. Just a little way to the east of the West Dorset village of Portisham lies a small vineyard. Former TV and film cameraman Simon Priestman and his wife Karen bought Little Wadden not so long ago and already the wine from their grapes is winning awards. Being not far from Abbotsbury and its subtropical gardens, Little Wadden also has a microclimate which has undoubtedly helped the quality of the wine their grapes produce. This small vineyard was first planted up in 2004 and Simon and Karen bought it in 2018, knowing absolutely nothing about growing or tending wine-producing grapes. And if you're thinking of row upon row of vines for hectare after hectare, as far as the eye can see, that's definitely not the case of Little Wadden. It's only about half a hectare, or roughly two acres. Enough, though, Simon told me, to keep them both very busy. If you had just a hundred vines it would keep you very 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 busy um we have four thousand and that's enough for the two of us <laughs> it certainly sounds it and and there there you were total novices never grown anything like like a grapevine before correct so we have always loved growing things um i've always had a a, a big garden you know a well-stocked uh, veg patch the kids left home we were particularly bored um we you know painted our house uh, sort of three times and we kept on looking at vineyards and you, and we sort of get it out of the cupboard and and look at it and go yeah that's a great idea you'd be mad to get involved but you know that's what we should do and eventually this is where we landed um i was a cameraman for 38 years and sort of the, the top of my tree in that game and I, and we were running both things together at one stage um that sounds but, mad mm. well it was mad i mean to a degree i mean it kind of works to a degree but i i think we didn't quite understand how much work was involved in yeah producing and caring for three different varieties of uh, uh, of grapes in a cold climate 
So you quit the studio, the television studios, for the uh, the open air and the South Dorset coastline, because you're just uh, just along from Portisham, aren't you? And actually, from uh, since you were a cameraman, from the one of the locations of the first Far from the Madding crowd. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, I think this uh, area of the coast, very very pretty as it is, is used for you know as a great many film locations. And yes, it is very, very beautiful, isn't it? And and shush, you know, it's um, uh, partially undiscovered, so <laughs> let's keep it that way. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll keep quiet about that one. <laughs> so, so there you were, the, the pair of you, total novices, and you tried to sign up for for a speedy, uh, a speedy winemaking course, but um, it was fully booked. So did you go and do some location research then in, in uh, places like uh, Italy and France and so on? No, it's funny, isn't it? And um, we're, our first, our first idea was to buy a vineyard in Tuscany, and um, we saw one for sale, um, and we looked at it quite seriously. We contacted the owner, but um, they kept on in a, in a rather wonderful Italian way. They kept on e- extending the amount of money that was required, and um, <laughs> uh, but we had it all lined up. We we knew we could have a flat in Southampton, and we could fly back have our equipment in Southampton and, and go off filming um, based out of Southampton. But then the more you, you looked at it, it, it really wasn't practical. So um, No, that, that, that's, I have to know. say, that sounds as if it would have been a truly exhausting option. Yes, now we know what we know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so Italy went out of the window and, and along came Dorset. And uh, when you found your little vineyard, it was completely overgrown, I gather. Yes, it was. It was, bless him. He, you know, he had done his time here, and with all respect to him, he, you know, he he'd put in all of his efforts, and I think that's great. Um, but you know, it's a lot of work for one one person to do. Um, so, yes, it, when we got here, and especially given that we, what happened was that we sort of wrapped on a location um, at about eight o'clock at night and drove back through the through the night to get here, not knowing quite what we'd find and when we got here yes it was totally overgrown <laughs> and and tell me was that your first view of the vineyard then no we had actually come and looked at it you know we weren't completely mad we had actually um come the one time and and had a good look round um actually i think we did we we, we visited twice at uh, to be fair but um when we saw it originally it was sort of quite well kept and maintained and of course it was just you know that sort of issue whereby it had taken quite a lot of time for the conveyancing and all of the legal stuff that has to go on um so by the time we actually got here yes it was height of summer and the vines were doing very well by themselves <laughs> they were they were they were growing all over the place vigorously <laughs> <laughs> and and you you've got uh, Simon you've got three grape varieties uh, yeah. what 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 sort are they i mean are they designed yeah. for um the the milder cooler climate that we have yes. although that's changing yes. yes well yes no they definitely are they they're, they're all three are all cold climate varieties um, because although we kid ourselves that um, we're in global warming, I think it's in global wetting. We just seem to be have wetter uh, summers rather than necessarily hotter summers, so uh, we have to be careful about how we look at that. Um, but, yes, three varieties, um, all of which you won't have heard of, but uh, basically starting with Regent, 
which is um, a red grape variety, makes a, a very lovely red wine. What, uh, akin to, to what? Uh, a um, Pinot Noir, a Shiraz? No, not as heavy as a Shiraz. No. Uh, you know, we, we would love to be able to grow Merlot or, or Rioja here or something like that, but, of course, it's just not possible in, this, in these conditions, in this climate. Don't have enough um, sun. We don't have enough sun. Um, so we are looking at something that's more like a Gamay, more like a, you know, if you wanted to... So like to a fair, Loire wine, yes? Yes, like I mean, it actually just sort of stands on its own its own feet, really. It, it's a Dorset wine, and it's uh, it's an English wine, and it's it's a very beautiful red. We uh, Last year, we managed, with all of that heat, admittedly we did have a good summer last year, as we all know, and we, we achieved 12% alcohol um, from our... Uh, region which is extraordinary because it usually comes in at around 10% um, but still produces a very light lovely wine um, as you know we are uh, low intervention so we are, our, our total ethos is just grape to glass if you like we try to not add anything uh, on that journey so we don't use sulfur um, we certainly don't use any synthetic chemicals or herbicides pesticides um, on our vines. Uh, I, I'm wondering whether the, the, the three varieties that you have bear any relation to the sorts of varieties that the Romans would have been growing um, nearly 2,000 years ago in southern Britain. Yeah, I do wonder that. I, I often wonder whether, you know, this is a perfect spot. Um, and the Romans, of course, were, were very big here um, in Dorchester. Um, they had to be to control the local population and this is a perfect slope and I sometimes when I'm digging putting new posts in I, I hope to come across um, you know a, a, an amphora or something uh, from there, <laughs> what, what's wrong with digging up some gold <laughs> it'll be even better <laughs> well, yeah the gold would be great but yeah but um, I think probably they wouldn't have grown these varieties these varieties are definitely bred um, hybrids um, and they're on a rootstock um, to make them less vigorous. So it's it's quite a sort of there's some science that goes into it all to try and to try and tame nature again. Uh, you know that's what we all try and do, isn't it? When we when we try and produce uh, produce something in a consistent way. So you you say you don't use anything artificial, no sulphur, no added ta- um, tannins, no colorants. So um, you're technically then still organic, though without the um, expensive bits of paper to certify Cor- that. That's correct. Yeah, we 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 were um, certified as organic, and it just became frustratingly expensive to to continue that. I th- it's a great shame that um, the organic body is don't fully understand that that uh, for, for small batch small enterprises the, the certification fees are just in excess of what what we can afford it, that is a shame because you know I'm sure there's many many vineyards of our size that would benefit from and and also want to get involved with the whole organic wave I mean we, we are we call ourselves regenerative we can't legally call ourselves organic which is slightly strange given that we are in an organic environment, but um, yes, we do everything which is basically in a, in an organic uh, method, which we we call regenerative. Um, effectively, we don't spray synthetic pesticides, herbicides, or any chemicals, and as you say, we don't use sulphur 
at the start of the winemaking process. So we just have wild yeast fermentation. So whatever yeasts are present when we take the grapes to be pressed, you know, that's what ferments the wine. We don't add a commercial yeast at any stage. So um, so really then, Simon, in a way, your, your method of production and, and growing the vines it turns the clock back to, to the way that wines used to be made. Could possibly be, yes. I, yes, I'm sure that's probably the case, yeah. And certainly we, we make a um, semi-sparkling wine called a col fondo, which is an ancestral method way of making a, a sparkling wine. Um, allegedly sort of ninth century you know the monks would have probably made it it's a re-fermentation in the bottle it's very polished but it just means that instead of um, having a traditional method you know champagne if you like this is an ancestral method so this is a uh, yeah and it's not it's not fully riddled and disgorged like a traditional method we do also make a traditional method but um yeah, this is a very delicious, a beautiful way of making a, a sparkling wine. More like a, more like a prosecco, but it's it's nowhere near a prosecco either. Uh, and you and you can't call it that because of uh, classification uh, regulations, can you? Correct, um, correct. It's a, but it is bottle fermented. You've pretty much sold me. I think I'll have to come down, <laughs> come down and try some. <laughs> so, so if you don't use any of the any nasty pesticides and herbicides, etc. sides, um, yeah. how do you control pests? Yeah, a very good question. Uh, pests we hope to um, we have a, a large wildflower uh, break in the middle of the vineyard and we hope to pull in as many predators as possible to help us out on the pest uh, on the pest front and since we've been here and since we've been uh, working the vines in this way um, we've seen such an increase in wildlife um, it, it's abundant which is fantastic and very exciting and then also to try and mitigate any diseases we use things like uh, willow bark um, we, we, we strip some willow bark um, make it into a tea just by steeping it um, taking it up to about 60 degrees um, not to that sort of simmer point um, leave it for about an hour at simmer and then just let it settle overnight and then I'll mix that with water and spray that on the vines and of course you know that's a large amount of it I think is salicylic acid or salic acid and so that's like the equivalent of what's in aspirin so um, you know that's that's one of the methods we use we also spray um, garlic um, to keep the um, pests uh, at bay so yeah, we we are hard at work but, using uh, but, but alternative there is, methods. That there is uh, there is one four-footed uh, pest which is a bit more difficult to control, and that's deer. Well, the deer we managed. Yeah, initially when we got here, we absolutely loved seeing the deer here. It was um, very exciting to see them in, and and of course if you're sort of um, upwind of them, then it's fantastic. They don't know you're there. Their, their eyesight's not that brilliant. Um, and we would enjoy watching them come across the vineyard, gradually eating the vines. And, um, then we realise actually they do so much damage, and on the scale that we are, um, we can't absorb the damage. So um, my daughter and I spent a month deer fencing the whole vineyard, which was quite an effort, but well worth it because now we are deer free. Uh, and um, I think the English countryside would look actually quite different without deer because it's just surprising how many saplings and you know 
just vegetation they they strip yes talk to any forester and they'll tell you they don't like deer uh-huh. and nor do they like gray squirrels yeah for the yeah. same reason yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> take the yeah. growing tips out of out of saplings or just munch them down to the ground in the case of yeah, deer yeah that's right that's so right. simon you you and karen you you um actually you hand your grapes over to a winemaker to make the wine for you were you are you thinking at some point of making your own Yes, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? And and our winemaker, who's fantastic. I mean, uh, you know, um, growing the grapes, um, looking after the vineyard, that's one thing. Actually making the wine is just another step further. And at this stage, and this is our sixth season, I think, to actually make the wine is is, um, another step uh, along the journey. And... We initially got in touch with um, Langham's here, just up the road, um, and Daniel Ham was their winemaker at the time. And Daniel, we, you know, we, we we immediately got on really well with, you know, fantastic guy. Um, was very keen to get in touch with us and speak to us and make a wine because we're uh, we were going certified organic at the time. And he is extremely well qualified, and you know. It's quite. It reminds me slightly of being a sort of um, having a director, cameraman, and editor on a on a on a, a film, um, because Daniel is like the editor. Effectively, it's good to have someone else's voice there and somebody else's. You know, so we can we we sort of play off between between us and 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 the winemaking process is. It's not an argument, but it's a discussion, <laughs> and uh, that's well worth having. So the so the wine that um, the wine that you sell and you've got an online shop and and you sell locally as well, do you? Yes, we, we, marketing is always with all businesses, isn't it? The most difficult um, element, really. It's we all come up with a lovely idea. Oh, let's you know, let's um, we'll make bicycles and we'll sell bicycles. How do you sell them? You know, wh- where do we sell them? Part of our slight issue is that, of course, we produce such a small batch of of each uh, variety every year. I mean, sometimes only sort of 700, 800 bottles. Almost impossible to sell. You you certainly can't start selling to supermarkets. Um, You don't particularly want to sell to trade outlets because, of course, the margin just isn't there for them. Um, So we rely on tours and tastings and and selling to the public and uh, welcome that contact. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, uh, speaking certainly speaking personally, and speaking, I'm sure for an awful lot of other people, it is lovely to visit a vineyard, taste the wine, and then uh, go away with a happy glow and half a dozen bottles in in the boot of the car. Well, yeah, and actually, it's an interesting point because um, we hadn't fully realised how many people do enjoy coming of a Saturday on a tour and tasting. Um, hear me, you know waffle around the, the vines, tell them the story of our journey here, um, tell them about the, the vines themselves, and then come up onto the terrace and have a, a beautiful plate of food that Karen's produced and, and some of our wine. And it's a very gentle, lovely afternoon out. You know, it, this all sounds like hard work, but I bet there's an awful lot of enjoyment for both of you, and I bet you wouldn't trade it for anything else now. No, I think that's right, actually. <laughs> Yeah, we are actually quietly very much enjoying ourselves.
Simon Priestman, and he and his wife Karen own Little Wadden Vineyard just to the east of the village of Portisham, inland from Chesil Bank and some of the loveliest parts of Dorset's famous Jurassic Coast. Do have a look at their website, and better still, consider visiting them and buying some of their award-winning wine. Crumbs. It's 50 years since that Hovis ad. Exactly half a century after an iconic Hovis commercial hit our TV screens, Roger Guttridge takes a stroll through the story of Dorset's most famous street. To paraphrase Sir Winston Churchill, Never in the history of a Saxon hilltop town have so many owed so much to a humble loaf and a load of old cobbles. Put another way, not even a lead role in the star-studded 1967 version of Far From the Madding Crowd managed to thrust Shaftesbury's Gold Hill into the national consciousness quite like that Hovis commercial. It was 1973 when an aspiring producer and director called Ridley Scott cut one of his filmmaking teeth on Gold Hill's steeply sloping cobbles. To the sound of Vorjak's New World Symphony, and an old fellow reminiscing in a northern accent, he filmed a flat-capped bread delivery boy pushing his bike to Old Mar Pegatys at the top of Gold Hill, before freewheeling back down the cobbles' legs akimbo. The 45-second commercial won a string of awards, and in 2006 was voted Britain's favourite TV advertisement of all time. The Bread Boy was played by 13-year-old stage school student Carl Barlow. He later recalled, On that first day I must have gone up that hill with the bike 30 or 40 times. And the same the second day going down, but that was more fun than pushing the bike up. 40 years later he returned to Shaftesbury to switch on the Christmas lights and was again photographed on Gold Hill with his delivery bike. In 2017 the retired London firefighter was back again to film a video promoting cycling this time with an electric bike. Will he be back again for the 50th anniversary? In 1978, the two Ronnies produced a take-off sketch of the ad in which Ronnie Barker is seen trudging wearily up Gold Hill with a loaf of bread to the same Vorjak soundtrack. As he finally approaches the summit, he comments in a northern accent, Grandad always used to say, to a long way to go for a loaf of bread. You can see that on YouTube, and cycling tourists continue to recreate the scene to this day. No stranger to the silver screen, six years before Hovis put jam on the bread and butter of Shaftesbury tourism, Gold Hill featured in several scenes of the film based on Thomas Hardy's novel. Gabriel Oak, played by Alan Bates, is filmed walking up the hill while Sergeant Troy, Terence Stamp, precariously leads his red-coated cavalrymen down the cobbles. In a particularly moving scene, a rag-clad Fanny Robin arrives, weak and exhausted, at the workhouse door, where a few hours later she dies in childbirth along with her baby, fathered by the same Sergeant Troy. References to Gold Hill, or Gold Hall, date back to 1350, and in ancient times sheep and pigs were penned there on market days. Following the destruction of the abbey in 1539, the hub of Shaftesbury life moved a few yards to the east to the area where Gold Hill meets the High Street and the Commons. At the top of the hill were the town stocks and the ancient Gold Hill Cross, probably a preaching cross and one of at least six old crosses that were dotted around the town centre. The Gold Hill Cross was removed in 1826 to make way for the present town hall. The house shown top right in the pictures in the online article was rebuilt around 1900 on the site of the old Lamb Inn and a forerunner of the workhouse. 
He'd also housed the Gold Hill Museum for a few years before the move to the present site a few yards away in 1957. And that's all for the second and last August 2023 episode of the BV Podcast. Terry and I will be back again with more stories of rural Dorset life next month. So until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. 